You're listening to a CounterPoint podcast. CounterPoint is the think tank of the British Council. In this episode, CounterPoint speaks to Peter Gattrell. Peter is a professor of history and member of the the Humanitarian and Conflict Response Institute at the University of Manchester. He's the author of several books, including A Whole Empire Walking, Refugees in Russia During World War I, and Free World, The Campaign to Save the World's Refugees, which is forthcoming. He's currently completing a book entitled The Making of the Modern Refugee. Peter Gattrell, thank you very much for agreeing to speak to CounterPoint. Hi. Hello. Um, the, the, the question of uh, refugees and migration, uh, asylum, is on the agenda, on the public and elite uh, agenda as much as it ever has been and as controversially as it, uh, as it ever has been. It'd be great to talk a little bit today about the history of the, the, this category of the refugee um, and popular perceptions of such to do a bit of contextualising. So I wondered if I could just ask you what you mean when you say refugee and whether you could possibly sketch uh, broadly the contours of the development of this modern category of the refugee? Yes, the category of the refugee is something that I think has to be looked at in two ways, by which I mean that there is a legal category, a recognised category in international law that originated in the post-Second World War era and that's embodied in the United Nations Convention on Refugee to which 150 countries are signatories. So it's a major piece of international agreement and international law. And we could talk a bit about how that state of affairs came about and why it's significant and why it's different from what happened before the Second World War. But at the same time, of course, we're also looking at a term that is very rich, very complex, very much in common usage, and people who use the term refugee or various other terms that we can talk about Uh, are normally not talking about international law or codes of internationally uh, recognised legislation. And so I think when we're talking not about international law, but about, if you like, common parlance, then I think what we're looking at is, as much as anything, the image of the refugee. In other words, if you stop someone on the street and you say, what is a refugee, there is likely to be a kind of mental picture that will come into that person's mind that has to do with ideas of flight from situations of intolerable cruelty or violence, but also with a sense of that person having been deprived, 
deprived of security, deprived of livelihood, deprived of, of property, but also therefore uh, an image of someone who is, who is bereft, who is abandoned, who has lost maybe not just a place in a particular society or community, but who's also lost something more, lost a degree of humanity. And that's a very profound and powerful image because it can suggest at the same time a willingness to engage with that person, to, to assist in something, to do something. But it's also paradoxically an image that entertains the possibility that this person is less than human, has lost, has lost attributes of, of humanity. And that can be very demeaning because it's already implying that that person is, is lacking. And that's, that's very distressing because it, it already implies that a refugee cannot do much on their own behalf, that they have to be helped, they have to be acted upon, they are in a sense passive rather than active. How do you think that ideas of individuality and a kind of uh, self-assertive subjectivity can be returned to the, to, to, to the ways of thinking about refugees? Well, it's difficult because many of the arrangements that are made by governments and non-government organisations, NGOs, and by international bodies such as the UN, UNHCR, the United Nations High Commission for Refugees, are predicated on, on the assumption that refugees, because they have been bereft because they have been become deprived have to be managed in certain sorts of ways and we're talking of course about the situation globally in many parts of the world we're not talking about the British Isles pure and simple um, that these ideas of of management necessitate a kind of stance that pinpoints the refugee as someone who is who is incapable and that has a history it's not something that belongs to the early 21st century alone if you think of examples of considerable refugee populations for example after the first world war and after the second world war often what happened was that governments faced with what they regarded as almost unstoppable and certainly very large movements of, of people tended to institutionalize the camp as a as a site of incarceration sometimes as a place of protection 
but fundamentally as a, as a place to manage the problem. But I mean, people in the, between the wars and after World War II were forever talking about the refugee problem or the problem of displaced persons. And the way of, of managing most refugees, not all, but, but very many, was to create this administrative device. And although in some cases camps might be operated to a degree by refugees themselves, in other words, the staff wasn't exclusively non-refugee, the staff might be refugees or displaced persons themselves. Nevertheless, what was being privileged was a sense of distance between the refugee and the non-refugee. And the non-refugee was someone who had cash, services, of one kind or another, in other words, would deliver health or reading matter, but also the idea of the, the non-refugee who had expertise, who had, who had knowledge, who, who knew the geography, knew, knew where refugees might or might not go, who had the, the pharmaceuticals, who had the, the whole range of, of, of technology that gave them a kind of privileged position vis-a-vis -vis refugees. And that both fed upon uh, and also encouraged a, a belief that refugees were fundamentally unable to do things for themselves. And I think that, that notion can be traced back certainly into the 1920s. It's not a product of the 1950s or the 1980s or 1990s. So in my interpretation, what I call the making of the modern refugee is far more than the historical circumstances that give rise to the displacement of this or that population. Yeah. And not just about the creation of a, of a body of international law, which is terribly important, but it's also about the way in which certain kinds of professionals, volunteers too, constitute themselves as, as having knowledge and wisdom and, and expertise which they bring to the refugee. And I also wanted to add that part of what goes hand in hand with this is, is not just the sense of refugees being bewildered, bereft, sometimes often regarded as apathetic, sometimes even as traumatised, all of which are kind of characteristics that are imposed upon refugees and turn them into a certain kind of person, a certain kind of object. But it's also about what happens 
when refugees demonstrate a kind of assertiveness of their own because there are plenty of examples of, of that. That, that refugees assertiveness can be very kind of dramatic when refugees arm themselves mm. and want to want to hold on to weaponry in order to establish some claim to the recovery of the territory that they have had to ab abandon. I mean, his idea of what one political scientist is called refugee warriors has has been very troubling for some observers. Do you, do you think it particularly troubling more so than the whole than another population holding weaponry? Yes, because I think the 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 analysis of refugee warriors suggests a kind of failure on the part of of those who have set up refugee camps in in the first place. A refugee camp is supposed to be a place of of non-violence, of order, of discipline, if, if you like, and to have a population that is retaining and may use armed force seems to go against that sense of, of what the camp should ideally be. Mm. But when I talk about agency I, I'd like to see this not just in its most dramatic manifestations the armed refugee mm. but also in terms of something that's more mundane in other words that refugees will find ways perhaps to undermine or subvert the arrangements that have been made on their behalf because they find them stupid or constraining in certain sorts of ways. So we'll push against the rules and the regulations that have been created usually for them rather than by them. But it's not difficult to see how that sort of self affirmation or self-realization will stick in the throats of people who are you know on the outside world and who see this as as irritating because what what's going on here is that the non-refugee apparatus has created a figure of the refugee that says here are refugees people who have needs and we are catering, we are satisfying their needs. And they should be grateful. They, they should accept this as being in their own interests. But that's, that's very dispiriting if you're, if you're a refugee in that, in that situation. Mm. So it's 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 very much a history of the, uh, the techniques and technologies of producing a certain type of population, or at least producing what um, people want a certain population to to be like. I I, 
I um, was struck by the description of the refugee camp as the cooperation of the compassion of some and the hatred of others, which combines to produce a distance nonetheless between the refugee and the non-refugee. Uh, but it's a, it, it's, there's certainly a distance. Um, but of course, what's interesting is that in certain instances, that distance is, if not overcome, then at least complicated in certain sorts of ways. I suppose the example that comes to mind would be the creation of Palestinian refugees in 1948 and the way in which their presence in countries such as Jordan, and Lebanon, and initially in, in Gaza and, and the West Bank, led to the establishment of a, a UN agency, Refugee and Works Agency for Palestinian Refugees, which, which continues to this day, in which the agency could only really function properly if it employed Palestinian refugees itself. So you have a situation where you have a, a UN agency dedicated specifically to the interests of assisting Palestinian refugees in which you had a relatively small UN administration, a very large Palestinian refugee population and a kind of group of UNRWA employees who were mediating between the UN and Palestinians in refugee camps, but who themselves were Palestinian refugees. So it is possible to imagine circumstances in which there can be a sort of bridge between the non-refugee world and, and the refugee world which is actually quite encouraging but nevertheless I suspect that historically the, the main condition has been one of separation of yes. non-refugee and refugee. Yeah and uh, the irony of the, the, um, the passivity argument is that it, it goes seems to go hand in hand with uh, at least popular um, ideas of refugees also finding them to be a threat uh, it's just part of a popular discourse and um, asylum seekers uh, or, or just a phrase the an asylum seeker today uh, through repeated um, associations has come to be essentially a pejorative which um, if you think about it for a second strikes me is a little bit extraordinary that the idea of someone seeking asylum should automatically be uh, taken as a, as a threat and a, and a disturbance. But the idea of refugees as being a threat of some kind or another has a very long 
genealogy. I can think, for example, of back in the First World War when thousands and thousands of Belgian refugees came to Britain after the German occupation and how initially they were regarded as heroes. Well, heroes and victims. They were victims of German barbarism, as it was said. But they were heroes because they were the living embodiment of, of brave little Belgium, as it was called at, at the time. But if you looked at the historical record two years later, for example, the public mood has become much more cynical, much more hostile, and that ideas that would be much more familiar to us a century on of scroungers, people on the make, are being circulated in 1916 and 1917. So the, the first flurry of, of popular enthusiasm and popular welcome doesn't take very long to diminish. And in fact, people in Britain tended to breathe a sigh of relief when Belgian refugees returned to Belgium at the end of the war. But you can find this, this language of contempt, of, of distaste, uh, running right through from the early, uh, early 20th century, uh, right through uh, to, to the present day. Of course, it's also uh, infused, it also goes hand in hand with the assertion in some quarters of British society that actually Britain has always been a haven. Britain has a tradition mm. of welcome. That part of part of being British is being tolerant and making room for the genuine refugee. Um, and what's interesting there is is work that some historians have done, which begins to unpick these claims as bogus, if I can use that, that word, that for all the rhetoric of, of welcome that you get, for example, during the First World War or during the Spanish Civil War or as the Nazi threat targeted Jews in the 1930s ever more seriously, that for all the rhetoric of, of welcome there's plenty of evidence that bureaucracy and some parts of public opinion said actually we can do only so much. And why that rhetoric gains so much power and uh, resonance is partly because there's a thread that also runs through this of refugees as being potentially an unstoppable wave or momentum of there being an endless procession of refugees who 
might bring strange customs to the UK or might bring a health risk. And alongside that goes an image of Britain as a kind of reservoir or tank that it's reaching saturation point that that the tank is about to overflow yeah. <laughs> that idea of the of, of the, the reservoir the tank the, the lifeboat that is at risk of capsizing because it'll be tipped over by the next person who comes is a very powerful one very difficult to to try and uh, counter yeah and it's and that's uh, the, the kind of liquid momentum metaphor yes. seems to be it seems to have been right through the history of representations of refugees representations i mean the i first came across this when i was writing about refugees in russia not in britain but in russia during the first world war mm. and this is a very interesting moment when a society had to come to terms with a mass displacement of people. Whereas before migration had been managed, more or less, it was now a process that seemed to be unstoppable. And the language that people used at the time was that of the earthquake, the flood, the tempest, the volcanic eruption, the flow of lava, all these terms kept recurring in in ways that were very striking to someone who was reading at the same time in British newspapers uh, the fears that were being expressed about refugees (coughs) in the 1990s. And of course, notions that were being uttered about the bogus asylum seeker. Well, the term asylum seeker I don't think was really much in circulation before the 1990s. I don't recall it being mm. a, a term much in evidence, but it seemed to be be whipped up in certain kinds of political opinion and, and some newspapers in, in the late 20th century, which is in ways that I think still have fully to be to be explored by historians. Yeah, yeah. But the idea that there is a there are there are genuine <coughs> and less genuine claimants, I think, can certainly be established for earlier periods as, as well. As if, as if we're comfortable in the, in the UK with the heroic exile. You know, the, the, the Solzhenitsyn from the Soviet Union, um, maybe the Sigmund Freud from Vienna, or Mazzini in the 19th century from, from it, Italy. The idea of the exile is something that appeals to to British um, a- opinion, and probably not just to British opinion either. Mm. But the idea of of mass, of, of number, the idea of of a flood, of people who will tip the lifeboat over, or, or will turn the reservoir um, into a into a, a flood. That is much more troubling to, mm. to public opinion. And do you think 
along with volume, the actual matter of cultural difference is something which inspires the, 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 the fear. I think what's true is that it's not just about size and scale. That there's also something here about race and culture. And I sometimes think that when I mentioned the, the person on the street earlier on who, who might be asked to imagine a refugee, I'm pretty certain that what would come into that person's head is, is someone who is non-white. Sure. But, you know, refugees have always been racialized in some way or another. The refugee population that probably loomed largest in international, including in British consciousness in the 1920s, was the Armenian refugee population. Yeah. Now, the Armenian refugees are very, very interesting because they were portrayed as bedraggled victims of Turkish oppression and Turkish violence, even genocide, in 1915. But why did this population attract so much sympathy and attention in the 1920s? It wasn't just about number. It was also because Armenians, including Armenian patriots who played upon this idea, could portray themselves as Christian victims of Ottoman stroke Muslim oppression. That didn't stop some people from portraying Armenians as something else, as dirty and bedraggled and a health threat and so on and so forth. But, but fundamentally their claims were the claims of a good refugee population. In similar ways, I think you could begin to trace refugee populations that acquire the attributes of good refugees. Sometimes this is, this is clearly politicised. Right. For example, refugees from communism in the 1950s. Hungarian refugees who, who come to, to Britain or go to the United States, by and large, acquire the attributes of being good refugees because they are non- or anti-communist. Or if you take the case of Tibetan refugees, um, why, why is it that few people would regard Tibetan refugees as anything other than good refugees? Mm. Partly, I suspect, because the notion of a Buddhist population at odds with the might of the Chinese Communist Party and the army suggests a pure victim population. Partly I suspect it's because Tibet is associated in British cultural life with ideas of, of the romantic Shangri-La that's polluted or disturbed or destroyed by uh, an oppressor, but also because of a clever public relations campaign by celebrities and others who've managed to 
create and sustain an idea of a Tibetan refugee as a, as a, as a good refugee. Whereas others, it's much more difficult to find a sponsor or a kind of discursive form uh, that allows Sudanese refugees or Kosovo refugees in the 1990s or perhaps Sri Lankan refugees to be allowed or to be given the same kind of attributes as the Tibetans, the Hungarians, the Armenians. At least that would be my mm. take on the subject. It's, it's, uh, that's interesting that it, it almost seems, uh, particularly with the Tibetan, that there it conforms to the, to, to the idea of the innocent. It's yes. Th th those refugees can fit more easily into the idea of yes. the refugee that, that um, the refugee wants to be. Yes. But, uh, but I'd also add that this can be a kind of weight or burden mm. for refugees within that population. You know, we operate with the assumption that there is this refugee population, therefore there's a kind of homogeneity or a uniformity of, yeah. of belief or behaviour or action. And yet we've got to acknowledge, we've got to find some room in our discussion to acknowledge the fact that there are differences within any refugee population. There are people who don't adhere to that stance that is being... Uh, advocated or portrayed by a by a leadership, they've always got to recognise that there are people who will buck the trend. It may be on grounds of class, or age, or gender, or political viewpoint, but there's usually going to be a a viewpoint or a, or a spokesperson who says this is who we are, and who's expecting a kind of conformity from the refugee population. Um, so I'm always intrigued by the idea not only that there's a Tibetan refugee community but there may be fissures and fractures within it which we don't hear about mm. because Richard Gere or the Dalai Lama are trying to create a particular kind of image of the recognisable Tibetan refugee. Yeah. I wondered whether you thought that the movement of refugees perhaps in a much more differentiated, individuated way um, than a refugee population, but actually the individuals that end up somewhere else, uh, has a part to play in the development of a cosmopolitan uh, set of values. I'm not sure that it does. I'd like, to, I'd like to think it does, but I'm not sure that it does. Why... Because we have to allow for the possibility that displaced people, whether they end up in refugee camps or self-settled in some way or another, begin to articulate a sense of their own distinctiveness their own sense of being targeted or abandoned which may well 
and in some cases certainly has created a stance which reinforces their sense of ethnic or cultural distinctiveness which means that they have to hold on to that sense of being apart because to dissolve it or to become as you say cosmopolitan is in a way to betray the people whom they represent or people who may have died in the course of trying to escape from violence so I'm thinking not just of current situations but also historically of instances in which it's the specialness of myself as a refugee that, that means to be true to my ancestors, to be true to my nation, to be true to the fellow victims who never made it into another country. I have to affirm rather than abandon or weaken my sense of difference from the other people in this society in which I find myself. In, in which I find myself. There are, there are some who uh, would posit that uh, refugees offer somehow a, a model or, or a testing ground of the, of the future uh, from the possibility of climate change related natural disaster and the ideas around kind of mobile architecture uh, um, through to um, Bauman's suggestion that refugees are, are like the shadows of the, of the globalised elite and therefore might um, kind of prefigure what, where uh, an extension of globalisation might go. Uh, I'm to thought there's anything in, in, in these, these future-facing ideas. I'm probably going to sound terribly old-fashioned about this, but I'm very sceptical about this. There are theorists, some of whose work I really admire and have learnt from, who will talk about this liquid modernity in Bauman's phrase, or, or about uh, nomadology, the nomad as the, uh, as the emblematic figure of, uh, of our current condition. And I think I understand what's going on here in these discussions of the tourist, the travelling executive, the person who's part of a brain drain, the migrant, the refugee, but I always see refugees as standing apart from this almost celebratory discourse of, of movement. Why? Because to be a refugee, albeit having a certain kind of status as a, a legally recognised entity, nevertheless is hedged around with so many restrictions, obligations, and the assumptions that we've talked about that mean that I can't 
really see refugees as being the carriers of a of a new kind of of modernity. They seem to me to be much more the the embodiment of of a world that's constructed as a series of sovereign nation states who've been expelled from one nation state and are trying to find somewhere that they can call safety. That doesn't seem to me to belong in the same cultural universe as the tourist, the gap year student, the high flying executive. do you think are uh, the, the most pressing questions around the treatment and status of refugees then um, going forward? Pressing issues? I suspect that we have to be alert to politicians who query the validity of international legal norms and, and conventions, who think of rewriting for the early 21st century things like the UN Convention of 1951. I think we have to more generally try and find some way of being a bit more reflective and thoughtful when we use terms such as refugee without stopping to think what's invested in those terms because it becomes all too easy to, to, to think of the refugee as a kind of undifferentiated figure with no history just a present and an uncertain future no attributes other than that of of loss or bewilderment whereas in fact refugees are human beings they they ha they have and have had careers experiences skills that we tend to lose sight of in operating with powerful yet very troubling uh, conceptions and categories such as that of refugee and I think that's probably the single greatest challenge beyond even that of, of, of the challenges of which politicians and Publicists speak of you know, the new generations of environmental refugees. Whatever the causes, the circumstances of displacement, we're still dealing with people who have attributes, skills, aspirations, wishes, and to see them always in terms of people who are who have lost and only lost something, and you have. Who have needs and only needs is is to go in a direction that I think would be profoundly troubling. 
Thanks very much. Appreciate it. Thank you. You've been listening to a CounterPoint podcast. Look out for the next instalment. And in the meantime, you can visit us at www.counterpoint-online.org at any time. The music that bookends this podcast is from a field recording of Jali Nyonkoling Kweyate, a Gambian chora player currently based in Manchester. See our website for details. Thank you.